Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Hear the Future, the podcast dedicated to gaining inside access to today's brightest minds. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Andrew Zuckerman. Andrew, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here. Andrew studied computer science at Harvard, where he co-founded the Undergraduate Science of Psychedelics Club. During his time at college, he also ran a YouTube channel, which amassed over 3.8 million views across 18 self-produced videos. He has previously interned at Bridgewater Associates and is now the executive director of the Qualia Research Institute, a nonprofit research group studying consciousness in a consistent, meaningful and rigorous way. So, Andrew, I'd love to know, um, perhaps you could tell us about your first encounter with the QRI. How did you come across it? Sure. So Qualia Research Institute is a pretty recent and new organization. They started a couple of years ago and I first discovered QRI, not through QRI directly, but through Qualia Computing. And Qualia Computing is the blog of Andres Gomez Emelson. He's one of the founders of QRI. And for a while now, probably since 2015 or 2016, he's been writing some pretty incredible things about consciousness on the internet, on his blog. And when I was in college, there was a friend of mine, his name is Alex, uh, who is a great person. I made a video about Alex that people can check out. But Alex put me in touch uh, with Qualia Computing. And then after that, I was so fascinated, I realized, wow, this is the cutting edge of understanding consciousness. And I reached out to the author, Andres, and we hung out in California, maybe like, you know, the following year when I was finding myself in the Bay Area. Um, I asked Andres to meet up and we spoke. And I was really blown away just by like, wow, this person has thought about so many incredible problems and has really specific things to say about them. And after that, um, maybe about another eight months passed or 10 months. And then I joined QRI at their first internship in May of 2019. So that's how I got involved. It was through this personal encounter with one of the founders. Um, yeah, and I've been here on and off since, but now on full time. For our audience, could you maybe define what, you know, what is consciousness and, and why why should we study it? Yeah, so um, some people have a definition of consciousness that's like self-awareness, like, oh, if you're conscious, it means you know that you're here or something like that. We don't mean consciousness in that way. We mean consciousness as just having an experience. So, you know, I have an experience now of being here in this room, speaking on this podcast with you. So I'm conscious and my dog, um, she's asleep on a bed next to me and I, I, maybe she's dreaming. If she's dreaming, she could be conscious, like having visual and auditory experiences that are obviously maybe some other phenomena that's not being in the room with me. Maybe she's like imagining herself walking around some field, but she could be conscious in her dream right now. So when we say consciousness, it just means, um, there's an experience of what it's like to be that thing. If you're conscious. Hmm. And what would you say is uh, consciousness research? You know, what is QRI trying to do? If you think about it, consciousness is all you ever have known all along, like since you've been here on this planet, um, you only have access to your first person experience in this world. Um, and it's kind of weird because I think some people or like even me before I realized this, I thought, oh, no, I'm like looking at the world. I'm looking at a tree. I'm looking at a road. But actually, no, you're looking at um, your brain's, you know, reconstruction of the road and your brain's reconstruction of the tree. So really, you're not seeing the tree directly. You're seeing a 
some version of the tree in your consciousness. And um, once you think about it this way, it's like, oh my God, this is like everything, all the happiness I've ever had, all the wonderful moments, it's all been just a conscious experience. And so understanding more about how consciousness works seems pretty valuable if we want to, you know, make people happier and have create better lives for people. And if this isn't specific enough, I could get into more details, but that's the gist. It's like, wow, all there is is consciousness. We might as well start studying this and learning about it more. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that sounds really interesting. Could you maybe, you know, go into a little more depth of, you know, some of the research that, you know, QRI is, is currently exploring? Sure. Um, so QRI is most interested in something called valence. And valence is a word from psychology that just means how good or bad your experience feels. So sometimes people replace valence with pleasure and pain. And at QRI, we are most interested in this because it seems like the most obvious thing that's important for <laughs> making someone's life good, like freeing them from unnecessary pain, like, you know, if they have some painful medical condition or just making people happier, like, and know we wish that with it for our friends and our family to have to give them happy lives and so understanding precisely okay what is happiness and what is um like pain and what's happening in the brain when each of these things happen it seems like if we can understand that which is what qri is focusing on then we can you know directly solve some problems related to pain and problems related to things that are we might not call pain but are in that same category of negative valence like depression and ptsd and anxiety so um, that is the approach we're taking. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, perhaps you could tell us a bit about the project life cycle at QRI. You know, I'd be curious to know how something goes from an idea or like a word on a whiteboard, um, to like a fully fledged research paper. Yeah. So, so far, a lot of our work has been just self-published on the internet. Um, and we're starting now to gear up because um, we want to interface more with the scientific community and we are preparing things for research publication. But a lot of threads have just come out in our, so we use something called Keybase. It's like Slack, but it's this encrypted Slack. And, um, you know, there's, besides getting our work done, there's just like so many ideas and comments being thrown about, about consciousness, random questions people have and interesting observations they made. And as we go and just talk as a team, uh, sometimes we just dive into them and develop them as ideas. And eventually it just enters this huge backlog of, oh, wow, okay, like someone needs to turn this into a publication or write about this more fully and prepare this for the world. So that's some of the cycle. And then besides that, um, that's on the writing and theoreticalized side. Um, we do have someone full-time, his name is Quinton, who's an engineer at QRI, and he is working all the time on analyzing neuroimaging data so he's been building for the past couple of months some software that uh, can take neuroimaging data of fMRI and reduce the dimensionality of it in a way that we think is more uh, convenient for understanding what's happening in the brain. I saw a couple months ago, um, yeah, you, you wrote a, a blog post uh, saying how donating to QRI today is like buying Bitcoin in 2010. Um, you know, maybe for our audience who hasn't read it yet, um, you could explain your thinking. Yeah, of course. So um, I definitely think that to clarify that, it's not about returns. Like <laughs> if you donate to QRI, you're not going to get 100 times your money in 10 years from now. But I meant the risk profile 
to donating to QRI for doing good is quite similar to Bitcoin in the sense that when Bitcoin first started, there was a chance, right? If Bitcoin became a major world currency, it would you know, have ballooned by thousands of times, like you'd thousand X your money or more. And on the other side of it, there's a chance that investing in Bitcoin or buying some would have done nothing and you would have lost your money. Um, and I, I don't want to like make people think if they donate to QRI, um, it'd be a bad choice. I just think that um, in terms of the upside, it's really similar to Bitcoin in that, you know, if you gave your money to the Red Cross, uh, I first of all, I don't know how good of a charity the Red Cross is. It might be good. It might be not so good for certain projects. But um, no matter what, if you gave them, you know, $10,000, there's a limited upside, like depending on their projects, whether it's giving someone food and water, um, it has, you know, some immediate effect and maybe you know you can make an argument that it has downstream effects like giving someone food and water increases the economy and that like makes the world more efficient and then someday in the future we'll all have better health so there is a big upside but i think it's like a bit convoluted for qri it's more like oh if you you know fund this research and we understand consciousness and pleasure and pain then like there's this huge upside where by getting this new knowledge of how to like think about these problems and potentially then finding solutions to all these pain and pleasure conditions. Um, the upside is like quite enormous, like, cause it affects everyone. It affects all human beings and animals and anything that's conscious going into the future. Um, and so the, in that sense, it's similar to Bitcoin where really the upside is quite enormous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a pretty interesting take. And something that you mentioned earlier was uh, balance or sort of pain and pleasure. And I know another key sort of research point that the QRI has focused on is this um, Principia Qualia. Could you maybe talk a bit about that? Because I feel like that's a pretty fundamental uh, piece of research that you guys have published. Sure. <laughs> so um, one of the other co-founders of QRI, his name is Mike Johnson. He wrote Principia Qualia because he was pretty unsatisfied with existing explanations for pleasure or what's happening, you know, when someone is feeling good or someone's feeling bad. He thought, if I just looked at all the neuroscience literature or philosophy of mind literature, someone had to have written about this and explained it well. Um, but he was coming from a background where he studied philosophy of science. So he was like pretty attuned to, okay, is this a real explanation? Is this not a real explanation? Um, and to give you an example, like someone might say, oh, pleasure is just um, like when this part of the brain lights up, like the pleasure center of the brain. Um, and that seems like, oh, that's an interesting explanation, but it's really not a great one. Why is it not good? Because it's pretty specific for just humans, right? Like it's only answering what is pleasure in a human because other animals have different brain architectures. So it's not like knowing this in humans, oh, this pleasure center gives us the answer for, oh, if you looked at some worm or some insect or some bird, are they in pleasure? Well, they might not have that pleasure center. So um, he realized that like a lot of the existing answers of what, you know, valence, what something feels good or feels bad is, were just not very good explanations. And the same thing could be said of neuro like neurotransmitters, right? So maybe someone will use neurotransmitters to explain uh, pain or pleasure. And then you go to an animal like a fish and realize, oh, wow, this fish doesn't have this neurotransmitter. Should he just assume that it does not feel pain? Um, so he, yeah, there's like, you know, this is the state of the literature. And he wanted to create a theory that explains what makes things feel good or bad that would apply not just to humans and hopefully extend to animals, but also 
basically extend to any conscious thing ever in the universe. Like maybe there's an alien somewhere that's conscious and has maybe not a brain that is anything close to an animal on planet Earth. We should still be able to say something with our theory about what this alien is feeling. So that was a big motivation for his book. And it's um, well, not a book. It's like, you know, this 100 page research document. And um, he sets out to try to create a theory for what makes things feel good or bad, while also grounding the foundations for studying consciousness on this problem. If I understand correctly, um, the idea and the reason why, you know, this is a fundamental good for, for humanity is that, you know, if, if we manage to understand uh, this, you know, th this pain and pleasure principle better, we can then eliminate all pain? Yeah, so I would say that um, the first thing we should do is get rid of all pain that people themselves don't want, right? That seems obvious. Like if someone is suffering from frequent migraine headaches that are just terrible or something known as cluster headaches, which are even worse, they're like uh, orders of magnitude more painful. Um, it seems obvious that if people don't want that for themselves and we have a solution, they should be able to help themselves and stop feeling this much pain. Um, so that's definitely like, you know, a big goal, right? Helping people who don't want to experience pain that they can't control have more control over that. Then there's like the question, right, of you saying, oh, is, I mean, maybe let me clarify, David, is your question like um, pain goes hand in hand with living a life? I, I guess to an extent, I mean, you know, my question is, you know, how much can you sort of eliminate pain? Um, and, and do you want to completely? Let's see. You don't like when pain is used as a signal for changing your behavior in a dangerous situation. That seems so important. Like, you know, your hand is on a hot stove. That's a classic example. You get a pain signal. You move your hand away. Um, so that seems like, wow, that's like a really useful thing to have. But um, there is an open question, which is like, hmm, this is the way that evolution like, you know, millions of years of evolution just running its course. This is the mechanism it created for changing your behavior, giving you this pain. But is there a way to, like, um, have the same change of behavior while, like, not feeling an enormous amount of pain? Um, or here's another one, right? So, David, like, you, you know, you take your hand off the stove and maybe you burned it and it's, like, super painful. Um but maybe that's right. That's your body still saying, hey, you shouldn't be using your hand right now. It's like needs to recover. That's why I'm sending you this pain signal. But it still is like pretty uncomfortable and bothers you. Maybe there's a way to like rewire the brain such that um, you get the message to not, to not use your hand and like keep it resting for recovery while also like turning off the pain. And, you know, we use our brains today to do that because we decide, hmm, I'm having this pain in my leg. So I'm going to take uh, Advil or Tylenol and I'm so I'm going to kill the pain and I'll just remember like to be careful and not overextend my pain here um, or my leg here so we definitely like try to do it and you know in surgery we try to get rid of pain um, because we think it's like you know we people should have anesthesia for operating on them it shouldn't be that painful so um, but I will share an anecdote it's not an anecdote part of history it's interesting when the first anesthetics came out, um, a lot of people were against it. Like, oh, we shouldn't, you know, use anesthesia for surgery. It's not natural. It's not good. Um, like maybe the pain is necessary. But today we, we look at that and laugh and it's like, oh, isn't it great and wonderful that like your doctor isn't operating on you for three hours and you're in excruciating pain. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we'll just say the same thing about all these other pains that today we don't have a choice to endure, but someday we might, well, we might have a choice. What is the relationship between evolution and consciousness? Was there sort of a certain point in time when we started being conscious or has it something, you know, is it something that's always been kind of growing inside humans? 
Yeah. So that's a good question. Let's, I mean, let's speak on behalf of ourselves first. So I think I've been conscious since I was a little kid, as long as I can remember. And there's probably a gap where like, you know, age zero to something I don't have any memories of, but maybe I was conscious too. And uh, Simon and David, what about you guys? Are you, were you conscious also throughout your life? I definitely, yeah. I mean, my my sort of earliest consciousness would be falling asleep on the couch and waking up in my bed. <laughs> That's a kind of <laughs> semi-conscious state. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think so. I, I, what's curious is like the age. Yeah, you said zero to like point X. I mean, I wonder what that point X is for different people. Um, but yeah, I, I would say yes. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's good. Like we have some data here that like probably humans are conscious even when they're a little baby. And um, I think that's a clue, like, because uh, babies aren't super complex in their cognitive ability. They don't have a lot of language yet or could do math or interesting things like that. But, you know, maybe they're still conscious. And if that's the case, then, you know, we should probably think that animals like with similar capabilities as babies are conscious. So like monkeys and dogs and other things like that. But um, my guess is that, yeah, consciousness is just something most animals have. Um, it's unclear whether insects might have consciousness and how much they do. Um, I think there's a lot of people that think that insects are conscious. Um, plants, are plants conscious? Uh, my current guess is no, <laughs> and I could explain why as well, why I think that. But um, to think about like where did it come from, we have super complex conscious experiences, humans, um, just from like our point of view. Like it seems like we have this crazy visual field that has objects and you know, colors and patterns and some of our other parts of being conscious like audio are also pretty developed. So it seems like if they're here, there's a chance that they offer some evolutionary advantage, right? Like if, if they have made, if it's been the case that like here we are and our experiences are so complex, it's unlikely that this would have happened if it wasn't related to being advantageous for the organism. The caveat, though, is this. Someone might say something called epiphenomenalism, and they'd say, oh, but maybe, you know, consciousness isn't actually advantageous. It's all the stuff, the com computations that are happening in your brain, and just as a byproduct, consciousness appears. So consciousness itself isn't that helpful. It's the computation. And so it's almost like a train being powered by coal, and the coal is being burning, is burning and giving off energy to make the motor churn. And then off the top of the train, you see some steam or, like, you know, steam rise and you think the steam is consciousness and say, oh, there's steam. So of course the steam is important for powering the train, but it's just a byproduct. So there is a view that consciousness isn't actually the thing that's advantageous. It's the computation and that consciousness is a byproduct. Um, at QRI, we disagree with that. And we think that um, consciousness was probably selected for and has computational advantages. So like consciousness is doing something that you can't do without it. Do you guys at QRI also sort of um, you know, study, I guess, you know, drugs and maybe the effects that it has on, on, on human consciousness. Is, is that something you're looking into? Yeah. So, um, there's a good quote that I'll just paraphrase it. I know it exactly. It's by this guy, Stanislav Grof, who's a psychedelic therapist. And he said something like psychedelics are for the mind, what the microscope and telescope were for biology and astronomy. And I think it's like a pretty accurate thing. It's like, wow, okay, we get to experience consciousness from a sober point of view most of the time. And, you know, even when you're sober, there's differences in what it feels like to be you. 
um, you know, sometimes you're really tired, sometimes you're really clear headed, sometimes you feel wonderful, sometimes you're down. So even in when you're sober, you get a lot of variation. But um, if you under certain drugs, like the variation is even more enormous, even more large effects. And so we think that drugs are pretty important for understanding consciousness because they kind of show you the boundary conditions for consciousness or get closer to them. So like, it's like, if you want to learn physics, um, you can't just do physics and understand the universe by looking in your room. You also have to look at black holes and the sun and superfluid helium. So um, we think drugs are a little similar here in that they'll help push consciousness in different directions that you can't normally see just sitting in a sober state. Or maybe not, definitely not, but it would be much harder to from your sober experience. I mean, yeah, I mean, I know drugs can definitely sort of enhance consciousness as well. I've heard um, accounts of people who have tried things like DMT or ayahuasca, and they've experienced sort of a state of very intense focus and concentration for, although it was a very limited amount of time, people have definitely, definitely reported that it has altered kind of their, their conscious state, which is super interesting. But yeah, I mean, another thing I'd be curious to know is kind of the QRI's take on AI. Do you think that computers or AI could ever be considered conscious? So this is a like a pretty big open question. And I think we we think they could be someday, but we think it's very likely that most things today are not. And the thing that's most important to consider here is binding. So binding is a term that is about how different parts of your experience can be weaved together into a single experience. So let's say I see David's holding up a pen and I see the shape of the pen and I see that it's blue. But in my experience, I don't see blue and the shape is two different things. I just see a blue shape, right? And the blue shape is next to his the skin on his face. And so I see, um, you know, this whole scene that's stitched together, all these little pieces that you think might be separate parts of the computation are being woven together into this one large experience. So we think that this is super important for, um, you know, some computer program having an experience is, are they somehow binding all the different computations they're doing into a single experience somehow? And we think that in the current way computers work um, on transistors, it's very unlikely that they're solving this binding problem. We think it's something, you know, deeply related to physics itself. <laughs> like it's a physics problem. It's not just like a computation problem. So in that sense, we think that if you're, you know, and as computer scientists, you know that you could run any computer program that's on your computer here with electricity with like an abacus or with a wooden Turing machine. So you'd have to believe then if you ran that program that you think is conscious on a wooden Turing machine that the computation alone is enough for consciousness, but it would be seem you know really strange if you just move some wooden pieces with your hands or with something else, and that created some beautiful magic complex conscious experience. So the short or the long answer is computers might be conscious, but it seems like on their current track it's unlikely, and they might be solving finding really really small microscopic amounts, but not you know creating any huge bound complex experience like what it's like to be you right now. Yes, Andrew, it's really interesting you say that. Um, do you think maybe if we changed, you know, where, on what the computation was happening, um, we would get a sort of a different result? Maybe if it was on maybe a DNA computer or a quantum computer with more processing ability, 
we could get closer to some sort of AI that had consciousness? Yeah, so I think that's definitely in the right direction where we're getting closer to where binding happens. Once we do that, yeah, there's great chances that we're going to make conscious computations. Um, but I don't know, right? So maybe it's a quantum process, maybe it's not. And so maybe the answer is quantum computers will be able to do this. And maybe it's a subset of quantum computations could do this. Or maybe it's this is not where binding happens and the answer will evolve in 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know, has the QRI ever thought about, you know, perhaps building some type of technology that might allow us to control our conscious experience, whether it's, um, you know, like a microchip in your brain or maybe a pill that you swallow? Is there kind of any um, sort of active research there? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm going to start by zooming out because I think, you know, we might think that technology that controls your consciousness is some really advanced, crazy thing. But actually, you know, if you drink tea or coffee, that's precisely what that is. That's technology that controls your consciousness. <laughs> and um, in, in that sense, like, we should just remember that um, people are controlling their conscious experiences all the time. Caffeine is one choice to influence your experience. Alcohol. Um, some people use nicotine. I personally don't. But, uh, you know, technology is a fancy word, but really it could be just, you know, some random thing we already use. Um, and then to answer for us, we are definitely exploring technology that could work on the things that we're interested in, right? So how can we help people who have negative valence experiences overcome those or like reduce that less? And how do we make people have just high baseline well-being so that, you know, if you start each day of your week, you feel great. And uh, it's it's wonderful to be you in this world. Um, so we're, we're definitely looking and trying to build things. Um, nothing invasive, so no neurochips in your brain. Um, but we're trying to build things that humans could interact with that can boost their mood and reduce pain. So what if someone were, were to say that, you know, they wanted to be a more conscious human being? Yeah. Are there any tips and tricks you can give us, Andrew? Uh, <laughs> um, from a scientific perspective, because you know you get a lot of stuff on the internet, but uh, often it doesn't mean much. But at least from from a scientific perspective, yeah. What are some things we can do? Yeah. Let me give you. This is a very complicated answer, and there's going to be a lot of science jargon in it. But just try your best. Sure. <laughs> um, my advice is to be here now. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> be here now that's that's something i could think about for hours where did you where did you come across that <laughs> yeah so this isn't me and i shouldn't take credit um the phrase was popularized by ram das who was this figure in the 20th century he passed away recently but he wrote this book be here now that was you know involved in this hippie movement but um that's the best advice like if you want to be more conscious you can't be more conscious sometime in the future. You have to be conscious right here. Um, like you can't tr do something now to be conscious later. The only time you're conscious is right now <laughs> or, or right now, like five seconds later. So to pay attention to your consciousness is something that happens in this present moment only. And that really is the best advice I can give. Some really solid advice. I mean, and I'd, I'd kind of love to know as well, on that note, you know, what is the end goal of the QRI in like a perfect world? What would, what would QRI's research look like? Interestingly, and this is like a hard thing, there might not ever be like a we're done kind of 
day. Like, oh, we, we can all finish up, dust off our hands. The universe is perfect now. Um, maybe like, you know, it's all just unfolding. And in the future, we, we solve a bunch of problems to help people be happier and help animals have better lives. And then there's going to be new problems that we discover that like, oh, wow. And we have to explore this thing that we've never seen before. And it seems pretty promising for, you know, either helping something. I'm speaking so abstractly now, but I guess a, a better future is definitely one where there's less suffering. People are happier. Animals are happier. And um, this could all exist in harmony. So like no one's happiness um, is at the cost of someone's else's happiness, right? Like someone has to become happy by doing something that is hurtful to another. So, um, you know, I think this is a perfect world. <laughs> yeah. So become, moving away from a sort of zero sum game towards somewhere where multiple people can benefit without kind of harming others. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Interesting. And are there any sort of uh, other organizations similar to, to QRI and, and, and how, how are you different? Okay, sure. So there really aren't, I mean, I think we're the only people that are thinking about valence from the way we are. Like other people right, have looked at valence in a neurotransmitter way or like in some localized way. But this is like the first thing I'm aware of where we're trying to answer the question in a way that's so generalizable. The, one of the closest things that I can say is um, Tononi is a researcher, Julia Tononi, who came up with this theory called integrated information theory. And people call it IIT for short. And um, they are also like a pretty new past 30 years, I believe, and maybe even 20. And they're a group that's trying to come up with a consciousness meter. So maybe we're interested a lot in valence, like how to quantify valence. They're just interested in how to quantify total amount of consciousness. Like how conscious are you? So that's something you asked before. Um, and maybe there's actually an answer to this. Like when I'm waking up right out of sleep, I'm actually less conscious maybe than when I am awake right now. And Tononi does a lot of work related to sleep research and unconscious and conscious and trying to measure that. So that's one of the closest groups. But otherwise, um, yeah, we're at a pretty cool point in history because I think we are some of the few people on the planet talking about this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, I think some of the work that you guys are doing, or all of the work that you guys are doing, really, is, you know, really mind blowing. Um, even just reading it on your website, even though there's a lot of it that I don't understand, it's 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 all presented in a very approachable way for somebody who doesn't have a background in neuroscience or any science or philosophy for that matter. So, yeah, really amazing job what you guys are doing. Um, and I guess at this point, I'd love to kind of ask you. A more personal question, which is how we always kind of close our close our episodes, um, and that is, if you could change any one thing in the world in the next ten years, what would it be and why? <laughs> um, great question. Well, I'd probably choose something related to this research thread because I do think it's so important. And um, well, I, I won't say like a specific thing, but the general outcome is that all the humans and all the animals on planet earth um, as a start should have good existences <laughs> and good, you know, generally just means that each moment of their experience in this world is from their perspective worth having. Nice. Nice. Awesome stuff, Andrew. Thanks so much for your time. And I guess last thing to wrap up, 
how can our listeners stay up to date with the awesome work that you guys are doing? Uh, so you can go to our website, qualiaresearchinstitute.org. And from there, you can subscribe to our newsletter or visit our YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter. That's the best stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time today, Andrew. Really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks so much, Andrew. Cheers. Cheers.